It is a beautiful summer day here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm going to be damned if I'm going to sit inside to do this. So you may hear the occasional rustle of leaves or the raucous calls of crows, but I'm sitting outside to do the 148th QuackCast. This one is called Another Plague Panic, and was originally written August 8th, 2014. 30-plus years in medicine has given me some perspective, as has infectious diseases, ID. One of the almost too numerous to count cool things about ID is that infections, unlike the diseases of modernity, have been plaguing humans since before we were humans. There is a sense, a usually unvoiced assumption, on the part of many people that we are supposed to be healthy, that our default mode is good health, and that with proper diet and attitude, we could obtain perfect health that was ours before the fall. I think not. I see no perfection in any human, except perhaps my wife, who would achieve pure perfection if she only liked steak and drank beer. We are a hodgepodge of anatomic and physiologic compromises that allowed us to spread across the world. But if you enjoy reading history, you realize that most of the time we have died like flies from infections, trauma, and other medical problems. The variations that allowed us to survive malaria or tuberculosis subsequently led to sickle cell anemia and the metabolic syndrome. Even with evolution, no good mutation ever goes unpunished. And immunologically, we are perhaps as individual as snowflakes. We currently lack the cost-effective technology to check for the many polymorphisms that increase or decrease our odds of infection. Just have the wrong form of snot, and it will increase your risk for meningitis. Who knows what genetic variations are lurking to increase or decrease the risk of disease. So I do not see the baseline of animals as healthy, just healthy enough, to survive and reproduce, and there is not a lot that can be done to be healthy beyond the simple basics. Don't be fat, have a reasonable diet, exercise, avoid too much alcohol and any tobacco. No matter what you do, you will get old and sick and die. But if you are lucky enough to get the right genes, please let me have my mother's and not my father's. You may get a reasonably healthy life. Men at sometimes are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in the stars, but in ourselves. I also expect infections, old and new, to sweep across the world. It happens all the time. There was no AIDS when I started medical school. West Nile virus was not in the United States until about 1999. Since then, West Nile has spread across the U.S. to all lower 48 states except Oregon. We still have very little transmission of West Nile in Oregon. I credit the beer. H1N1 influenza had not been seen for 50 years, but it came back like gangbusters in 2009. So infections spread across the world all the time. It may be due to birds, like West Nile, or airplanes, like SARS, or even boats. Bubonic plague was unknown in the West until steamships brought it to San Francisco in 1900, and then the plague spread across the western half of the United States. There are many factors that can contribute to outbreaks and the spread of infectious diseases. You need susceptible hosts, you need an infectious organism, and you need an efficient mode of transmission. 
Generally, the best ways to spread infections are coughing and sex. Always avoid sex with someone who is coughing, I say. The nice thing about sex as a method for spread is that the organism does not have to be present in high amounts or be very infectious, since sex appears to be a pastime that most people enjoy repeating. Most people with herpes, as an example, are never symptomatic and excrete small amounts of virus pretty much continuously. So the organism has ample opportunity with repeat exposure to be spread. HIV has been interesting. In the old days, before we knew about HTLV3, we only knew the risks for HIV, one of which was having many sexual partners. It was not uncommon for patients to report Wilt Chamberlain-like numbers for their sexual contacts. That has changed, and as a result, there is some suggestion that as the number of partners has declined, along with an increase in safer sex, HIV may have become more virulent. With less opportunities to be passed on, it is only the more infectious virulent strains that survive, although HIV does maintain the same mode of transmission. Every couple of years, there is a new infection that gets everybody worried. It might be HIV, or SARS, or West Nile, or Legionella, or MERS-CoV, all of which have been frets in my time. And now it is Ebola that is the current infection most in the news, which at, as of the beginning of August, there are 1,700 cases and 930 deaths. It took about six months to cause that many cases in an area with a population of around 20 million. And this is an area with a horrible infrastructure, for both healthcare and infection control. While a ghastly outbreak, and the WHO predicts as many as 20,000 deaths if it's not brought under control, Ebola does not appear to be particularly infectious or pose much of a pandemic risk. Compare that, for example, with H1N1. Quote, from 12 April 2009 to 10 April 2010, we estimate that approximately 60.8 million cases 274,000 hospitalizations and 12,469 deaths occurred in the United States due to H1N1. And there were perhaps a quarter of a million deaths worldwide. Ebola, from an epidemic potential, appears to be trivial. It looks to be one of the many localized outbreaks of awful diseases that are common in the world and may be increasing due to global warming. Ebola is spread by direct contact with blood and secretions from infected people, and as such, in areas with resources, be relatively easily controlled with aggressive infection control procedures. Based on what is known to date, I do not worry overmuch about the spread of Ebola in the U.S. Direct contact is not a very efficient way to transmit infections, especially infections that are rapidly fatal. Most infections that are spread by direct contact are relatively indolent. Maybe I am overly sanguine, but I do not see much to worry about with Ebola, either from an epidemic potential or having it spread in the United States. 30 years of following infection control procedures, and I have yet to catch an infection from a patient. I remember at the start of the AIDS epidemic that there were those who refused to care for AIDS patients due to worries of catching the disease. It never worried me since I knew the modes of transmission, and I do not partake of those behaviors. That said, I still remember the first AIDS patient I took care of. Before we even knew about HTLV3, 
offering me a box of chocolates from his bedside and declaring he would have to, quote, spit in my mouth to pass on AIDS. While I had no problem touching the patient, shaking hands, or doing the exam, I politely declined the chocolate. I would, however, eat one today, as long as it didn't have walnuts. It is curious that people worry about Ebola, yet little is said about dengue, another very common hemorrhagic fever that is at our doorstep. Quote, the World Health Organization estimates that 50 to 100 million infections occur each year, including 500,000 dengue hemorrhagic fever cases and 22,000 deaths. Dengue has what is perhaps the most efficient mechanism for infection spread that is known, mosquitoes. I have seen it estimated that half of all human deaths in history have been due to infections spread by mosquitoes. Dengue is present throughout Central and South America, and the mosquitoes that spread the infection are ubiquitous in the southern half of the United States and, sadly, Oregon. For example, 40% of people who have never left Brownsville, Texas, and really, who would not want to leave Brownsville, Texas, have serologic evidence of dengue. There has been an outbreak of dengue in the Florida Keys, and where there is dengue, there follows yellow fever. Both dengue and yellow fever have the potential to spread or reoccur, as in the case of yellow fever, which caused considerable morbidity and mortality in the 17th and 18th century America. And with global warming, there is the potential northern spread of the mosquito vector. No one seems to be particularly worried about these two infections, but instead fret about Ebola, some of it totally wackaloon. There are many infections to worry about, with the potential for local outbreaks of pandemics and epidemics. But that has always been the case. The best we can do for most infections is a holding action, keeping it at bay with public health measures such as vaccines and potable water. Unfortunately, I doubt we will ever be able to repeat the successes such as the eradication of smallpox and rinderpest, and many of the predicted short-term changes, the next thousand years or so, are likely to increase the spread of many infectious diseases. These infections do offer opportunities for those in the world of pseudo-medicine. For some, like the natural news, perhaps alternative medicine is the preferred term because it suggests an alternative universe, you know, the one where Spock has a goatee, and not the real world in which I live. Although homeopaths have weighed in on the appropriate magic water to be used to treat Ebola, evidently homeopaths are not heading for Africa to prove the efficacy of their therapy and there will be scant opportunity for them to use their magic in the U.S. or Europe to treat Ebola. Homeopaths love to credit the proof of their superior therapeutics to the cholera outbreaks in London in the 19th century. Given the purging and bleeding that were the standard medical therapy of the time, the nothing that is homeopathy was likely better than the dangerous interventions of the time. There have not been many epidemics this century for which homeopathy could test their mettle. H1N1 hit hard and fast, and to judge from the few papers on homeopathic treatment, it can be judged as hit or miss. Or perhaps miss and miss, given the quality of homeopathic research that resulted from the H1N1 epidemic. We may be primed for a new epidemic in the United States, chikungunya. It is in the Caribbean where it is going gangbusters, when eight months there have been over 500,000 cases as of August 2014. Quote, 
Six out of 10 cases have been reported in the Dominican Republic, which tallied 307,933 cases in Epidemiological Week 31, up 26,000 cases from last week. In addition, Guadalupe reported 71,000 cases, Haiti reported nearly 65,000, and Martinique recorded 54,000. The French side of St. Martin, where the epidemic began, has reported 4,500 cases. Now that's an epidemic. Spread by mosquitoes, almost everybody who gets the virus has symptoms, fevers, muscle and joint pain, rash and headache, often quite severe. Death, fortunately, is rare. There are now a few cases of chikungunya transmitted in the United States, and once it gains a toehold, I suspect it will spread fast. It took West Nile less than a decade to cross the U.S., although it had help from birds. Perhaps it will hit the poor disproportionately since they do not have air conditioning to keep themselves cool and away from mosquitoes. Homeopaths have treatments for chikungunya, although they retain their usual inability to understand the difficulties in assigning causality to events when treating a process that is, by its nature, self-limited. We are perhaps on the cusp of millions of cases of chikungunya in the U.S. Given that there is no specific treatment or prevention, besides avoiding mosquito bites, for chikungunya, and 70 to 90% of those infected will become ill, it is a perfect opportunity for homeopathy and the other pseudo-medicines to put up or shut up. An epidemic is probably coming for which medicine only has supportive care, so this should be a perfect opportunity for pseudo-medicines to demonstrate their superior effectiveness with modern methods. Somehow, I suspect that this will not happen. P.S. Idle thoughts. I have asked psychiatrists why practicing homeopathy does not meet the criteria for delusional disorder. I always get a blank look. I'm not a fan of the DSM, mostly because one past girlfriend or another has used it in an attempt to classify me, and I am well aware of the sordid history of using psychiatry as a means to suppress those whose opinions are unpopular. The latter is certainly not appropriate. It seems to fit, though, and homeopaths are a danger to the others since they act on their delusions. This is probably a weakness in the DSM rather than that of homeopaths. It remains one of the curiosities of human cultures and medicine. People can believe in and practice medical systems that are totally divorced from reality with an acceptance found in no other profession. It is really weird. And so that ends the 148th QuackCast. If you're bored, head over to iTunes and write me glowing reviews. Otherwise, head over to sfsbm.org and check out the Society for Science-Based Medicine. Talk to you next time. Bye.